but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is episode 154, and uh, Madison Keys is tired of fucking losing. No, Sloan is. <laughs> After which she lost. I understand, I understand. <laughs> but being as they are good friends, I like to think that, that Madison took a little bit of inspiration from Sloan's mm. answer in the presser and sped her way to victory in Charleston. Madison shows up in Charleston dutifully every year. It's the biggest North American women-only event. It's historic. It has a lot of delightful quirks. I unfortunately have never been. You didn't get to go this year. But it's a tournament that is important to a lot of the WTA gals, not just the Americans. WTA gals? Yeah, gals. <laughs> Girls is a little bit demeaning. You, but I think gals you, is okay. You put a little bit of a southern... southern... <laughs> inflection there into that i feel like i'm not in good voice today i like a little more vocal fry in my voice do you know what that is are you soliciting compliments from the listeners no oh no james you sounded amazing sweetie don't worry about it as a podcaster (laughs) one has to keep one's voice in tip-top shape and it's just it's not there today madison beat tatiana maria yelena ostapenko Sloane Stevens in the quarterfinals, a resurgent Monica Puig under the tutelage of new coach Mr. Kamal Mari, and then in the finals she beat Caroline Wozniacki. Caroline herself had a great week. Her results have been spotty of late. Clearly she is newly dealing with this rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis. She is getting married shortly, currently on her bachelorette weekend with Serena, Nicole Gibbs, and a whole heap of other young women. I didn't know Nicole Gibbs ran in those circles. No, I did I did not know that. But Wozniacki beat Laura Ziegemund, who before her ACL tear was one of the best clay court players out there. Buzarnescu, Maria Sakari, Petra Martic, before finally losing to Madison in the final. Now, it should be said that Caroline is not a natural clay court player. And I think that makes what she does on clay uh, impressive in its own way. Because it is clear that it is not the most comfortable surface for her. I, I, I don't buy into those labels anymore with respect really? to clay court players and non-clay court play- players. I don't know. Did you watch? So Caroline did a lot to beef up that forehand around the time when she was number one again and she won the Australian Open. But I think she is just more comfortable being a counterpuncher and a retriever. Like It's just not in her DNA, right? So some of her strokes just have trouble penetrating. Sure, but then every year we see players who we don't think of as best suited to clay having good results. Madison herself has said that she's not comfortable on clay, but she has had results herself. Mm-hmm. Making the final in Rome, losing to Serena, made the semifinals at the French Open last year. She loves Charleston. She wins yeah. the tournament this year. It's, I, I think we're in a post-stereotyping era of tennis. Okay. Madison's own vision of herself on clay is different than most people's. I think she's more down on herself on the surface than the rest of us. 
because we've seen her do great things on clay, even before the semifinal appearance last year at Roland Garros. I actually think her game is suited to clay a little bit. She's able to get more topspin and bounce on her shots rather than just punish the ball through the mm. court. And even the balls that she does you know, hit through, they get a little bit more purchase, and it makes her more formidable, I think, as an opponent. Whereas on hard courts, she can be a little bit flat. Even when she's hitting the ball well, if she's not able to hit through the opponent, it's really only one look. For Madison, I just want to say I am I'm pleased for her because she's somebody who's grown up under the tennis spotlight from a very young age with huge expectations on her shoulders. And in a lot of people's estimations is not where they would have thought her to be. And and with that comes a lot of pressure. She's one of the many at this point living legacies of the Williams sisters. Mm. You you're trying to carve out a career under the the specter of having all that history behind you. And you're supposed to be the next best and it just hasn't happened. And and recently in the last couple of years she's had a couple of high profile failures. And with respect to, to Sloan Stevens, another one of the presumptive next best kinda seen her pass her by. And also, I look at her in relation to Naomi Osaka as well, and to see where Naomi has come in such a short time and pass her by, that had to be kind of a gutting situation for her. That said, I also think back to when I interviewed Naomi in Charleston a couple years ago, and I asked her, what do you make about the comparison between you and Madison Keys? And she resisted it wholeheartedly, full-throatedly, as much as she can be (laughs) full-throated. distancing herself from the comparison because she felt that Madison was so much more accomplished than she was at that age. Right. She felt that Madison was already a veteran, Mm -hmm. really. In relation to her. And now, uh, hello, world number one, two-time slam champion, and Madison is now, for us, claiming a smaller clay court event as a big victory. Mm. So Madison, since... She was hailed as a possible future star. Muguruza has won two majors. Ostapenko won. Sloan won. A few of these were highly unexpected. Kerber came out of nowhere, seemingly. But people in her same generation, like Sloan and Muguruza, asserted themselves first. So I think that actually beating Sloan in this event will be good for Madison after that tremendously bad performance in the U.S. Open final, losing to her at Roland Garros without putting up a lot of resistance. It wasn't uh, it wasn't like the U.S. Open performance, but it wasn't electrifying. It was still straight sets, which right. their previous three matches had been straight mm-hmm. set losses. So the win over Sloan here, I think, is a big deal. Madison has struggled through very serious wrist injuries. I don't know. I, like, I think she has so much time. I think it speaks a lot to her maturity mm. to still be able to to be here after going through so much. And that's not something that I think she gets enough credit for, that she is one of the more mature, younger players on tour. She mm. carries herself like a grown-ass woman. Now, Sloane Stevens caused a bit of a kerfuffle in the press room because she said some bad words. Apparently, some people were upset by it. Of all the things to of be Of all the things by. in the world today to be mad about. It was perplexing to me. 
Sloane Stevens is finding new ways all the time to generate interest, both within the press environment and outside of it. Sloane uh, is not always very forthcoming with press, but sometimes she just gives you a quotable moment that you can use that has a lot of mileage. And this is one of them. She was asked, what was it about this match that made her so intent on winning? <laughs> I said, I'm tired of fucking losing. Shit sucks. She's <laughs> like, oh, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and then she apologized to her mother. But that sort of reckless abandon that Sloane occasionally exhibits, like every once in a while, is what keeps people coming back to the well with her. Muguruza won a tournament in Monterey. Man, Muguruza is another one. I don't know what the hell is going on, like Madison, like Sloan, and here she is, just playing excellent tennis for a full week in Monterey. Beating Azarenka in the final. For Vika, this must have been a heartening week for her. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was an excellent week of tennis from Vika. It is so satisfying to watch her kind of play to her ability. Unfortunately, she was injured in the final and had to retire, but she beat Angie Kerber in three sets in the semifinals. Mm -hmm. That's a big win. Yeah. Angelique Kerber is probably thinking right about now, like, what the hell? Really, hard courts are where I'm going to make my money. And this bratty Canadian girl has beaten me twice. And now Victoria has beaten me in Monterey. I don't think she's thinking about it that seriously. Well, at maybe this point, maybe about the first one. I don't think she can be too salty about losing to Vika. <laughs> Svetlana Kuznetsova. I'm sure many of you wondered where the hell she was. Had she retired? Is she injured? Is she training? What? She occasionally posts on Instagram some practice footage. No, we weren't even getting that. All we were getting were photo shoots, mm-hmm. public appearances. We were getting a lot of, like, St. Petersburg madam walking Dolce. <laughs> it was... Dolce is her pit bull. Yes. But we didn't get any tennis. That was the alarming thing for right. me. We weren't getting any tennis it was at like all a, for months. Almost like a Yankovic situation. And then she shows up in Barcelona. In Castel de Fels. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like a suburb of Barcelona, near the coast. Mm. We looked into spending some time there, but instead we're going to go to Sitges. Yes. <laughs> And so she practiced, she had a a block of training in Barcelona, and then she went on to Switzerland in Lugano, winning two matches right out the gate. Wins her opener against uh, up-and-comer Alexandrova, beats Tamea Baczynski, whom she has never lost to, who herself is on the comeback trail and also excels on the surface, obviously. Before losing eventually to Kristina Pliskova, the other Pliskova. Mm -hmm. And the other Pliskova in making the semifinals, made quite a breakthrough because her results have not been great. So the the tournaments with Madison and Muguruza, those were from a week and a half ago. Because it's been about two weeks since we've recorded, right? So that yeah. happened in our first week off. And then last week, we had Anisimova winning her first title in Bogota. Anisimova beat Sabalenka pretty convincingly in, Austral- in the Australian Open. She has a very impressive power game. She's only 17 years old. Uh, I mean, the sky's the limit. Like, there, there is just no shortage of these young WTA players who are up and coming, who are ready to slay. Speaking of, Anisimova beats Australian Astra Sharma in the final. Which has to be one of the great names of tennis, right? Why is that? It's just such... I just love that name. Astra Sharma. <laughs> it's just mellifluous. I... Oh, okay. <laughs> 
So we have Anisimova winning in Bogota. And then we talked about Svetlana coming back in Lugano. The winner of that title was Polona Herzog, who beat the heir to Radwanska's apartment complex empire, <laughs> Iga Svantec, in the final. If we have any Polish listeners, help us. We did try really hard with that name, but it's, it's not an easy one. It's not like Radwanska. She's only 17 years old and uh, blitzing her way up the rankings at this point. Mm. Marrakech, Morocco had a lot of intrigue this week. I like this two-week stretch in the calendar because there are so many clay and non-clay tournaments around the globe that a lot of people who are sort of off the radar get to win titles. So in the WTA, we've had, what, like 18 different title winners at this point. There have been no repeat winners. On the ATP side... So the folks that you're happy to see win when they normally win, when you're talking about Benoit Pair. Well, not... I know you're sure. not. Sure, Ben is, no, but I, he's I, fine. But, but I I'm, know you're not. I'm just saying I like that these few weeks give other players a chance to shine. Benoit Paire is much heralded, is adored even, as like the hipster tennis uh, paragon. He beat Pablo Andujar in the final. Pablo has had just a wild ride of it over the past few years. He had three elbow surgeries in 2016 and 2017. He was ranked in February of 2018. Last year, he was ranked 1,821. Did you know there was even a ranking that goes that high? I did. Well, there's not any more. Correct. But there was. So Pablo has been through it. And he actually won Marrakech last year on a ranking of like 1,000. So he, surprisingly, will actually lose points from reaching the finals this week. Tsonga was into another semifinal. Hopefully he won't have to play qualifying in these big tournaments anymore. And down in Houston, Texas, at the U.S. Clay Court Championships, which is normally uh, a place where American men can shine on a surface that they don't normally excel at, Christian Garin wins the title, a 22-year-old Chilean beating Norwegian Kasper Rud in the final. Only one American made the quarterfinals at the event, and that was Sam Query, Mr. Tennis Sangren notched his seventh consecutive first-round loss in an ATP event mm-hmm. since winning in Auckland to start the year. He did make the semifinals of a challenger the week before, but his streak of losing in first round of ATP events is intact. I'm happy to report. You're happy to report. I am happy to report. <laughs> this is totally unrelated, but have you noticed there is a rising contingent of alt-right tennis Twitter? I must not be paying much attention to there it. There is. There is. To what to what end? I'm what not are going they into it because no, but what are they saying? Well, there's definitely like an an incel tennis Twitter, a misogynist tennis Twitter, and these are all overlapping, right? Mm-hmm. But I they just seem much more vocal lately. What are they saying? That's what I want to know. Uh, the typical thing. WTA is trash. A lot of them are exclusively ATP fans. You know, just like very abusive stuff. And I want to reiterate that that is not related to Tennis Sangren, but it did um, trigger my memory. Okay. Speaking of, Yanko Tipsarevich beat Tennis Sangren. Which is one of those matches that there's just no winner You're just like, in our book. Cool. All right. And then we got, we got treated to folks telling us, oh, you go listen to that interview that he did on this podcast because Yanko was so fascinating. 
I'm happy to say I did so not. I did not I, listen. I didn't listen. I don't. So okay, as like a fellow podcaster, I don't begrudge the tennis podcast for having Yanko on. Oh, I didn't even know it was a tennis podcast. Oh yeah, honestly, yeah. I didn't even know. You're a journalist. This is this is of interest to your listeners, obviously, and it got a lot of play. It's just not something that I'm personally interested in. Like I, I'm just not going to spend my time doing that because because he reads philosophy like i just don't believe that because you've had a daughter like you're a reformed misogynist i I remember what he said you know and i i don't know if he still believes it i'm not really that interested nor do i think reading is something that should make somebody interesting like Uh, it's okay he's intelligent fine or at least intelligent adjacent i'm not in the position to judge that Mm. you know i'm just not really that interested in finding out okay so that's that we're coming up to the Clay Masters events. Monte Carlo is the first one on the calendar. The draw obviously is packed, as every Masters event is. Rafa is a defending champion. Tell me some observations from this draw for you. I, I don't pay attention to draws, really. <laughs> I mean, it's just such a useless, futile exercise. That said, a cursory perusal. I was like, well, damn, there's some interesting matches earlier on. We saw that uh, Rafa, in his quarter, he's got RBA, Stan, Dimitrov, and Cecchinato, as well as Chilich. And now, because of his strong results to start the year, Felix is in the conversation. Right. A lot of people are looking at Felix. He could face Fonini in the third round. Uh, Felix already beat him once on clay in Rio earlier this year. And uh, this kid played so many matches on clay at lower levels last year, won a whole heap of them. And, I mean, he is generating fans wherever he goes. It's, of course, the first event that Rafa is playing since he had to withdraw at Indian Wells ahead of his semifinal match against Federer. That, that seems just like yesterday. Yeah. Right? Uh, but he's been practicing for a while now. He said in his pre-tournament press that he doesn't really know how to gauge where his form or his game is right now. As always, it'll depend on how he feels when he actually gets into match play. Mm. But it seems that physically he's okay. We shall see. Yeah, I mean, he's practicing hard like he normally does. There was a mini-drama within the Nadal family because (laughs) Uncle Tony said... Uh, Rafa is not a... I don't see him as a tennis player. I see him as an injured person who plays tennis. And I understood what he was going for. And some Raw fans were upset. Uncle Tony has since apologized to Rafa for the comments and said he didn't mean it how it came out. Rafa's fine with it. It's how fine. did it come out? I don't understand. I, it, I, I take it to mean that at this point, Rafa is somebody who has to manage his body so extensively and uh, permanently mm-hmm. that the, his body and the injuries that he suffered are dictating his life as a tennis yes, player. Yes, yes. I think that's exactly what he meant. And I think that's fairly simple to <laughs> conclude. And I'm, I don't think that Rafa thought twice about it. I, I don't, it's, it's alarming to me the things that folks get worked up about. <laughs> <laughs> like, people are really mad about the ATP clay preview poster about uh, the positioning of the players and she's like really see, i must have been sleeping because i only saw the adjusted one the yes where folks were like well took you long enough to fix it and i, I did honestly i could have sought out the original to find out <laughs> but i was like i just can't this is not something i can let into my life right no. now 
As far as the clay season as a whole, the big stories are similar to the to what they were the past few years. The the wrinkle is that Novak Djokovic is is truly back to some of his best form. He hasn't played great in his last two tournaments at the Masters, but he is defending three Grand Slam tournaments. <laughs> Expect him to be a massive, massive threat at Roland Garros. Um, the other wrinkle is that Roger Federer is playing his first season on clay since 2016. Mm-hmm. He won't be playing in Monte Carlo, but he does plan to play Madrid, Rome, and Roland Garros. The other other wrinkle is that Dominic Team is a newly minted Masters 1000 champion and also already one of the top five best players on clay. Right. And so we've thought of him as, well, people call him Rafa's son. <laughs> For a myriad reasons, uh, but this is something that can only push him forward. Like in previous seasons, we're like, well, team is the one who could really push Rafa. And he made the, the French Open final last year mm. after making the semifinals a couple times before. So we see a natural progression for him on clay, specifically at Roland Garros. And now he's made strides elsewhere. To be clear, okay. the strides that he's made are not nearly as quick as damn near everybody expected from this guy with such prodigious talent. Mm. But it seems that potentially team is on the cusp of something special this spring. Right. And, I mean, he excels on clay every year for the past few years. But if you think of, like, the opportunities for him, he has only quarterfinals at Monte Carlo and Barcelona. You're talking about points to defend. (laughs) Yeah. Like, on, okay, only the quarterfinal. He was runner-up in Madrid to Alexander Zverev last year, but he has a first-round loss in Rome. Obviously, he's defending runner-up points at Roland Garros, but there are places to grow. I think you're way more optimistic. Because an earlier, really? like a pre-quarterfinal loss at the French Open wipes off, wipes out everything. Yeah, yeah. So, However, I will say, like, would you take, if you're Dominic team, would you take another runner-up finish... At Roland Garros, or a victory over Nadal, let's say, in the Monte Carlo final, or the Madrid final. Like, which would you rather have? Because I think one of those is very possible. He's beaten Rafa on clay multiple times, and it's usually like at one of those tournaments where it's not a a shocking loss because Rafa is tired, and let's face it, like, he needs to conserve for the French Open. At this point in his career, with what he's achieved, I don't think you take uh, anything less than trying to beat the best mm. in a Grand Slam final. If I, I'm, I'm just assuming that's what his mindset would be. Yeah. I, I, I really don't know how to answer that mm. question. Really. <laughs> what do you think? That's fine. No, I think I think you're right. Like he's beaten Rafa on clay before at smaller. I mean, not small events, but at Masters events, he wants to beat Rafa at Roland Garros. Like, he wants that Grand Slam title. See, I, I'm in the Rafa camp here. People always say, oh, if they could beat this person on their best surface, at their best, that would mean so much. I'm like Rafa. If I don't have to play this person and I can still win, I'm happy. He says it all the time. Oh, yeah. He's like... No, when what? people say, like, the dream is to beat this person at this event, I'm saying, like, no, the dream is to not have to face that person. Isn't it? Exactly. For me, it is. <laughs> right. 
Do you think Roger Federer thinks his Roland Garros title doesn't count because he didn't face Rafa? Absolutely not. There's only it going counts. to be a dwindling number of bitter Rafa fans who will be able to add that asterisk <laughs> and caveat as the years go on. Alexander Zverev is another one to watch on clay, obviously. The past two years, he's won Masters events. Last year, he won Munich. He won Madrid. He was the runner-up in Rome. When you say someone to watch, do you mean someone to watch to see if they'll have another just absurd implosion in a moment where it should not happen? Oh, Jonathan. Because this has been the story of his career thus far. Not, in the big moments. Not his in the big career. moments at the slams. No, not his... Okay. At the slams. This isn't a Roland Garros preview. This is just a clay season preview. He's been in, uh, I would say, maybe a mini slump over the past few months, right? But this this guy can excel at Masters events like crazy. Mm-hmm. I felt like um, two years ago when he won, he won, I don't know, Rome, I think. I, it felt like it was coming out of nowhere on this surface. So I wouldn't be surprised if he won one of the big ones here. I'm just, n- I'm increasingly less sold on Zverev, especially in the last... 12 months where we've seen for the first time really so many of the younger ATP players step up to Mm. the fore. For a while even though he's still so young he was the he was the one who was doing all these big things. Well and he's still ranked number three. I'm not taking that away Mm. from him but now we have Tiafo, Shapovalov, Tsitsipas is in the top 10. Felix is on the come up. There are all these young players who are not afraid of doing big things and have done big things. And I think that maybe that has shook him a little bit. It's and possible. even from a non-tennis results perspective, just from occupying a place of prominence in in the fandom's imaginations, Tsitsipas has totally, totally supplanted him as far as the young ingenue heartthrob kind of thing. And I think that shit matters to these young mm. guys. I think it's possible that, like, the tastemakers' opinions have shifted a bit, like you said. They may have moved on from Zverev, at least for the moment. Like, they're waiting for him to take the next step. And superficially, I think folks have seen that for a lot of these young guys, they have charisma that feels authentic. Mm. That feels that it's not contrarian, that it's not just nasty for shits and giggles sake. Which is a lot of what... (laughs) Zverev's aesthetic is. I mean, you know, it's a more varied field for the young guys. And I think he now has to not only find his place on the tennis court amongst this group, but also Mm. in the branding of himself going forward, because that's part of the equation for these young kids. This generation that, that spend so much time on social media cultivating their fan bases through just crazy, stupid shit. No, my personality is extremely important. If if Alexander's charisma is based on the fact that he's a little prickly, I think that's fine. I thought you were going to say because he's a little prick. No. <laughs> I was a little I bit worried d- there I for a second. I did not say that. He is a little... You did not. He's a bit prickly. Yes. I Even I, I think his fans can, can admit that. I don't think that necessarily has to be a bad thing as a star. I mean, you know... Look at Jimmy Connors. Look at even Andre Agassi when he was young. But he had he was exploding with star power. Like that's the difference, right? And there's also the the eye test of the the actual game itself. Mm. Does 
Alex has a game that wins majors, period. Do people find it interesting? Maybe not. Does that matter? No. Marin Cilic has a game that wins majors, but I mean, are people flocking to watch his style? He has a game that won a major. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll take the point of information. I'm just saying Zverev is at a bit of a crossroads now, if I'm to be incredibly harsh about it. It is harsh because he's practically a baby in the, in the life cycle of men's tennis. Novak Djokovic will most likely extend his already massive lead at number one. The best results he has to defend from last year were a semifinal in Rome and quarterfinal in Roland Garros, where he lost to Cecchinato. Would anyone be surprised if Novak won one of these Masters on clay? That's, no, that's, that's a silly question. <laughs> I assume it was rhetorical. Right, exactly. I mean, would anyone be surprised if he won Novak Slam 2.0 and won Roland Garros? I wouldn't. Still the reigning king of clay, forever if and healthy. always. If healthy. Still, forever and always, is Rafael Nadal. And uh, you say if healthy, but like the only way that really comes into question... See, I don't even know. Like When he had his struggles in, what, 2016 into 2017? like That was more a matter of confidence. Hmm. It st- surely was injury-related as well. Right, but do we often see him retiring from those March tournaments? Sometimes maybe he'll take one off. But he's won Indian Wells a bunch of times. It, it was kind of alarming to see the injury factor come in so early in the season. Last year, it happened at the Australian Open. He retired, and then he took a lot of time off before clay. This was, this was different to me because it's like, okay, in March, I'm having some serious pain in my knee. But in April, I have to start defending this shitload of points. See, I don't think it's that serious. It's the tendonitis. He knows how to deal with it. But it's we saw unpredictable. Him. It's unpredictable, but we saw him in that second set in Indian Wells against Hachanov. was in the quarterfinals when mm. it first reared its head, and he looked very bothered by it. Yeah. And then he kind of figured that, well, you know, I'm not going to make it any worse. I'll, I'll be okay in this match. Mm. Then he just seemed precautionary. I don't... See, see, if Rafa were super seriously injured to the point where you're worrying about is he going to be okay for this swing? He would not have been practicing like he has been for the last few weeks. Mm. He would not be yeah. Monte Carlo. Rafa, at this point, would not sacrifice the French Open to play in Monte Carlo, as much as he loves it. Mm. Like, there, there are goals, and the clay court goal is always in Paris. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that he's there and he's practicing, I don't think the knee, unless... It, it comes up again while playing is going to be an issue. I think he's okay at the moment. Okay, okay. Some coaching changes going on. Dominic Team is on a break from Gunter Bresnik. They've been together forever. Denis Shapovalov. I was very surprised by this. He has moved on from Rob Steckley, who is a Canadian. He, I think you have written here Canadian bro. He is a definitely a bro. He coached, but he did coach uh, Lucy Shafajova for years, many years. Lucy made the Roland Garros final against Serena Williams under the tutelage of Rob Steckley. They, uh, I mean, Dennis and Rob seem to be getting along famously. Dennis became a young MC under Rob's tutelage. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I say and- that because Rob Steckley was a big part of all those videos, right? Has been a big part of Dennis's social it may not be acrimonious. No, Who no, knows? I don't I don't think it is. 
I was just surprised to see that that split. We saw that Fabrice Centaur had been working with Milos Raonic. We now know that he's been added to the dossier of coaches of Milos Inc. for the rest of the season. I love that Milos will work with any accomplished coach or player. Like, it, it does not have to be someone who plays a similar style of game to him. He is just out there to learn, to gain knowledge. Could, I mean, could Fabrice and Milos be any different in game style? You're just killing it with the rhetorical questions this episode. <laughs> God, that's such a terrible trait. I'm, I'm really going to stop that. <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to say? Right. What do you want me to say? That is a conversation killer, a rhetorical question. I'm so sorry. You've been very interested in this Patrick Moratoglu interview mm-hmm. that happened. And for the life of me, I don't understand. <laughs> I wouldn't say very interested. No, you have been because... I would say annoyed. Six of one or half a dozen of the other. Pick your poison. Since, since You've I've, had a lot to say to me privately. I always have a lot to say about everything. <laughs> so far, I have not been very intellectually stimulating for you during this recording <laughs> session. So, uh, I mean, what could be more stimulating than Patrick Muradoglu? Intellectually. <laughs> I, we, uh, <laughs> Lord... I had not read this interview until right before recording. Mm. So I'd been listening to you talk about it and tweet about it, but I didn't I didn't know exactly what was said. And I read it and I was like, well, he has a he has a fair few good points to which you were immediately riled <laughs> and ready to take me down as I had to shout you down and be like, save it for the podcast. Yeah, so we're saving it. Patrick gave an interview to uh, George Belshaw at Metro UK. Patrick always gives good quotes. Mm-hmm. There is no denying. Patrick is a good interview because he likes to talk. And he'll give you a lot of substance. It's, it's not just uh, the typical soundbite here and there. Like, he wants to talk about serious stuff. It's not trite stuff. He has mm-hmm. opinions about everything and he shares right. them. Patrick, talk- I had talked about a whole slew of things. But really, the issue was... Where is the state of tennis and how do we move forward? How do we grow the sport? In relation to other sports that are very topical, that get people talking, that has a lot of engagement from younger demographics. And as a macro view of the state of tennis, it's a legitimate concern. As to how you deal with that on a micro level to fix it, if you assume that there is a problem, that's where all these disagreements come Mm. in. Patrick presupposes that tennis is suffering internationally, that it's in decline, and that the average age of tennis fans is growing. His math is a little bit, uh, I would say, fuzzy. He's not really clear about how averages work, but uh, I... I Why? (laughs) Why do you say that? (laughs) He said the average age of tennis fans now is 62 and in 10 years, it'll be 72. It's not exactly how statistics work. Sure. Uh, but, but no, what I was going to say is that the point is not lost on me. That the the average viewer viewer of tennis is maybe not as young as the average viewer of NBA basketball, for example. But see, I don't even think it's a matter of dismissing and say, okay, it might not mm. be. I think it's absolutely a huge gap between them. If you think about how 
who is interacting on tennis Twitter, which is where we we get a feel for a lot of things that's happening. Mm -hmm. A lot of these folks are older, and by that I mean our age and older, <laughs> which is ancient. Oh my God. Which is ancient for social media. We are still millennials. Ooh. Advertisers are trying to capture us. Be that, that 18 to 49 <laughs> demographic. Okay. Be that as it may, you still have a lot of 40, 50, even 60 year olds that we interact with on a regular basis on Twitter mm -hmm. regarding tennis. Which like, I think is great. Patrick yeah, doesn't. Absolutely. But that's not growing the game. Like it's an it's tennis is in a crisis to where cricket was before the advent of T Twenty cricket. Cricket isn't yeah. cricket like the second biggest sport in the entire world? No, but prior to two thousand five or so, it was a matter of like how do we adapt test cricket to then make cricket on an international okay. stage more viable going forward? And they came up with T Twenty cricket, and now. All these T20 leagues around the world that have exploded have done wonders for the game outside of India mm -hmm. because that's never going to be a struggle to sell and market the game in India. Okay. But so in cricket, you have a format traditionally that lasted over five days, could have lasted uh, 35 to 40 hours. In tennis, you have matches that occasionally can go five hours. Yeah, but the, it's a... It's a fairly good blanket comparison between best of five Grand Slam matches and Test cricket, I think. Okay. And I'm not here to say that that should go away. I'm saying that they're, like Patrick, I find it interesting, this discussion of how do we cut through in different ways to make the game more marketable to younger people. Mm -hmm. I don't think the answer is like a... Short, tie break tennis or shortening the, the matches or whatever. I don't think that's... And nor does he think that that's the case. But now we get into a discussion of the stuff that he's presenting. Is that the way to go? Mm. So Essentially... The, the methods are, are where we diverge, right? That's what I'm so saying. So you, you agree with his... Macro, but not the micro. With the assumptions that the argument are coming from. Yes. Okay. He said... A quote that really stuck out to me was, I'm not thinking about the players. I'm thinking about the figures. That, this is where you lost me. <laughs> I had trouble keeping up with the interview after that. Because it becomes clear more and more that, okay, he wants to get rid of the code of conduct. He wants to get rid of no on-court coaching. He wants to get rid of Hawkeye. Basically, he wants to remove the barriers to like civil interpersonal interaction on the tennis court. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're here for, for drama and whatever you you know you're the biggest drama queen queen ever and everything but the code of conduct does also protect people who work in tennis who are volunteers who are umpires line judges like sometimes these people are subjected to ritual abuse to an absolute deluge of abuse if Fabio Fognini or Jack Sock are on the court for example do we like is that worth the entertainment value for calling female umpires whores and bitches? Like, is, is that part of sort of the dream tennis world that Patrick is envisioning? He wants drama. He wants players that you don't like, which I get. You, you can have villainous types of players, but, like, there is a human element of the sport as well. Like, people are also just trying to do their jobs. I don't think anybody, including Patrick, would disagree with you with that. There is a distinction, though, between making those protections, 
keeping those protections, which, let's be honest, are not really doing a good job to begin with. No. But also allowing players to show more color on court. Like, is racket abuse necessary? I imagine that's mm. one of the things that right. come into play here. Is swearing an issue? Like, we're just talking about how folks are all up in arms about Sloan Stevens cussing in press, where there's no kids, they're all grown-ass adults, mm. nobody's being targeted in an aggressive way, she's making a joke about a win, a, you know, a joyous situation. Right, right. And folks have a problem with that. And I think it ties into this overall uppityness stuck-upness, uptightness in tennis that doesn't allow the sport to be accessible to younger people. Like, how do you have that kind of ideology of of the sport and its purity or whatever translate to a social media generation? Mm. It just doesn't. But, it's incongruent. But I wonder, and I don't know, the, the big issue, I think, is there's so little research about what, what are the sort of things that will allow tennis to garner new fans like is is there data about this stuff and i don't really think there is it's a lot of people spitballing and saying well if we do this then more young people will watch Mm -hmm. and most of those people are over 40 who are saying those things like they presume to know what young people want i am 33 i don't know what young people want i also it doesn't feel that far removed from when i was young but (laughs) i also think it's entirely possible that tennis itself as a product the actual game itself is just not appealing to young people. It's a very niche sport. Mm. It's a niche sport for a reason. It's not just because it's inaccessible because of country clubs or because it's rich white people playing it or whatever. The actual sport itself might not be exciting to young people. (laughs) And how do you fix that? But there is a lot of money in tennis. Mm -hmm. Like some people are making serious money from tennis. Rolex and Porsche and Volvo and all these big companies find it profitable to sponsor tournaments, right? Or else they wouldn't do it. Um, when when was tennis one of the major sports in the United States, for example? The 80s? Oh, late 70s and 80s? But, no. Still niche, but, but... there's the big four sports, and then there's a massive, yes. massive jump to the next sports. Sure, but everybody of that generation, and I think that's what Patrick was talking about here, as the people who are now 62 mm-hmm. going to be sempted to all those people knew about the major players in tennis right they all followed they all tuned in to watch it does um, american people know who serena williams is everybody does you know she is the the lone breakthrough star with venus into like mass culture in the united states it's serena alone well back in 2000 because a lot of those people still can't tell serena and venus apart well that's well, just the that's truth. That's a whole other thing. No, but it's the truth. Right. But I'm saying, like, when was tennis a major sport? Back when the uh, the Philadelphia Cricket Club existed back in the 1800s? Like, Listen, I don't think that tennis has been a major sport for a long time. Forget about major sport. I'm talking about the fact that you had small-level tournaments that were actually in the United States mm. and that were actually broadcast. On CBS, on a weekly basis. Like, tennis could be accessible no, because true. people were that's watching true. it. In our lifetime. In our lifetime. And where I think we need to focus our energies, if we are truly concerned about the, the, the survival of the sport going forward, is a redistribution of the wealth in tennis. That's mm. the only thing that's going to change anything. And it's not just about getting more viewers. It's about 
the sustenance and the replenishing of the talent. We've seen what's happened with the ITF and the new changes that have made tennis that much more difficult for players outside rank of the top 100 to survive. What's the good in worrying about a product if there is no product? If there's no players to to keep the, the product strong and uh, entertaining? Right. And so we need the, the powers that be to invest more money in the ground bottom level of the sport. The USTA... If we're talking about from a North American perspective, they need to make sure that younger kids are playing, have access to play the game. You think about where you were as a kid, right? Like you had interest in in basketball growing up. Like you didn't mm. play, but your sister played, oh but God, you were interested God. in it. You followed college sports, mm. but you also had a, a hoop in your backyard. Um, you're a bit old at this point, but say, you know, you grew up in upstate New York. Carmelo Anthony is the biggest thing at Syracuse. You're all like, wow, that's really cool. The next day you go out and shoot some hoops. You're not good at it, but that's a way to reinforce your interest <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the yeah. sport. How many kids can go watch Serena Williams play and then like, oh, mom, take me to the tennis court. I'm going to go play for a little bit. Like that. That's where it becomes an issue. And so, right, but, uh, but I don't accept that because I think tennis is actually not as expensive as people think it is. It's not as expensive as picking up hockey. Hockey is one of the big four sports, but how many kids can play it? You're taking you know how for, expensive it is? No, but you're taking for granted that folks have access to courts. Like, you grew up with a lot of courts. Yes, you had a court. Free. Free, free courts. You had a court at your high school. Yes. You had many courts and parks in upstate New York where you could go to. We know that's not the case in, in, in Ontario and mm. Canada. Mm-hmm. And for a lot, especially inner city kids, like, that's not the case. You talk about right. Serena being this great icon and the most recognizable one, but say, for example, she's... We've seen that there are a lot more black kids playing tennis and coming up through the pro ranks. But if there are these kids in, say, inner cities or more urban areas, where are they going to go play tennis? Mm. Not at the West Side Tennis Club in New York or at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. No. Like Serena had a father who drove them to the local courts in Compton. And so my point is if you want to make the game more accessible to young people, they have to be able to play it. And for that to happen, you have to be able to spread the wealth more from youth sport all the way up to making it possible for kids to progress, not just on a tennis scholarship through college, but then also when they go through that process and you have somebody like Danielle Collins who makes it out and she's doing well now, but also the folks who have to struggle through the lower level pro pro uh, leagues and then struggle for two, three years and have to be able to still make a living while doing it to right. then become better. And Patrick was very critical of the ITF's new transition tour, saying that there has to be this level of professionals who actually have a legitimate chance of reaching that top 100, who can actually spend the time and while making a living and honing their talent. Right, Because there are a lot of talented people who have dropped out of tennis because they simply can't afford it. Mm. Because they can't get people to lend them money over the course of a decade. People who they will owe when they become pros. There's this romanticizing of young people and what you need to do to get them. Be it TV, (laughs) ratings, sports, or whatever. To get young people on board. But it's more granular than that they're tangible things that you can do outside of all these grand thought experiments and it comes down to money in my mind Mm. and and taking the time and the effort and the money and the resources to get people actually 
on board playing from a young age. Mm-hmm. That's what I think anyway. So where we diverge, where Patrick and I diverge is that... I can tell you where you diverge. His comments on the Serena thing. <laughs> and then also giving this overall impression that it, you just need to just have a free-for-all and let all manner of things just right, happen. Right, right. So I wouldn't classify myself as a purist, but I do like a lot of things about tennis. So I'm drawn to tennis. So when he's asked directly, was Serena's meltdown at the U.S. Open good for tennis? Patrick demurs, and he says, you understand it's a very difficult question to answer for me, but you know the answer. You know the answer. So what is the answer? To me, he's telegraphing here that, yeah, I think it was good for tennis. I think it brought a lot of focus to tennis. He understands, I don't think that he fully understands, but he understands that Serena is one of the most criticized players out there, that eyes are are focused on her. Um, I would be surprised if he got the whole American racial dimension of the whole thing. Maybe I'm not giving him enough credit. No, but here's the rub. He may lust after black women, he may marry black women, he may father children with black women, but I don't think he gets the full 100 about what it's like to be black in America as Serena Williams, even though he's her coach. I don't. I mean, I don't get it. That's where I grew up. But of course, I don't get it. No. Uh, He's a white man from France. How is he supposed to get it? But to say that that incident, that grotesque spectacle of the U.S. Open final was even possibly a good thing for tennis, to me, that's, that's where the argument falls apart. He thinks that all attention is good attention. All press is good press. And I don't believe that at all. I see. I think there's some kernel of truth to it. If you can set aside all the fuckery that that stemmed from it, <laughs> and all the ways in which it was painful for us, and for a lot of the people involved, mm. Serena, not the least of which Naomi, like a lot of people were personally hurt and affected by this. There, I can see how there can be some good coming from the fact that in a society where still the best of women's sports gets the back half of sports center. Right. Even at its most excellent. At its its most excellent. I always tell this story I'll never forget as a 14, 13 to 15 year old being very interested in the in the WNBA when it first started. And the Sacramento team, I believe, with Ruthie Bolton Holyfield was in the final. And the the WNBA finals had just finished and I was in Jamaica at the time and my only access to like live sporting stuff was watching Sports Center and I waited and waited and waited and waited and waited until I got like maybe 20 seconds at the back end of the show. Like that is the disservice and the lip service yeah. that women's sport gets. And so when you get somebody like Serena, even in this moment of great turmoil, leading off Sports Center, all the sports shows, all the cable news shows, like everything, like you are causing that conversation in society. And a byproduct of that is that tennis gets some some spotlight. That can have a positive effect. Mm. We can't have that happen every week. We can't rely on that to drive the game and build a game. That's just unsustainable. And these are not, uh, these are very surface level. Yes things right like these are not structural changes to who's coming to tennis this is a what's in the news cycle this week what is spectacular 
this is a number 15 on the list of things that mm. can help the sport. I'm just I'm trying to take his arguments at face value like without without getting into who he is or or my own very biased opinions about it. That's the moment where I was like, wow, I can't separate these things because he is speaking as Serena's coach. That's that's his job, like yeah. on the international stage, right? Wearing may, a lot of hats. He with may a have lot a conflicts. lot of different jobs, but his number one job as a celebrity is Serena's coach. And to say that, like her pain, her very visceral pain, not to say that she made every correct decision in that moment, but but also a pain that he helped cause that he thought that that was beneficial for the game as a whole was a bit uh, repellent to me. And then to wrap this up in the idea that you believe that coaching should be allowed. So is what you did in the US Open final an act of civil disobedience? Mm. Like, just because you believe coaching should be allowed doesn't mean that you should imperil your own players' chances Mm -hmm. by openly coaching. Like this is what you did was not was not an inroad for you to make this grand statement about tennis governance. No, because like you you altered the course of a match yeah. as a coach, and that's not what a coach is supposed to do. Because also, let's not overlook the fact that this can be viewed as a pivot to then make himself look better and excuse his role in what had happened. Right, right, and the other thing. Is that a There's lot of more? people are seeing that this is uh, he is angling for the job of Nick Kyrgios's coach. He loves Nick. He says that Nick is the only one out there who is capturing this spark, this sort of 1980s John McEnroe magic that Patrick Patrick is looking for. He wants that job. So when Serena is done, like that is that is the next mountain to climb. Speaking of adding drama to tennis, Stefano Tsitsipas, we've come to find out, has blocked Daniel Medvedev on social media. <laughs> it's so, it is so petty Listen. that he tagged every goddamn player in that Monte Carlo photo, that class photo. What had happened was, in the lead up to this Monte Carlo event, there was a photo of all the major players, and Stefanos tagged them on social. And for Medvedev, he tagged a fan account instead of Daniel's account. <laughs> and in response, well, not in response, but also Medvedev had a similar post and he tagged everybody ex- except for Stefanos. <laughs> and so somebody asked him, why you say vamos? <laughs> why you don't tag Stefanos? <laughs> and he was like, well, I can't tag somebody who's blocked me. Oh. Oh, girl. And that was the tea. <laughs> that was the tea. And, you know, this is this is a long-running, percolating... It's a feud. It's, it's a, feud. a feud. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. And I'm looking forward to Ryan Murphy's take on it in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> but if you recall, one of my favorite moments from last year was when Medvedev told Stefanos to, why don't you shut your fuck up? Yes. Like to this day, I still say that in my regular life. It's oh my god! It's, it's so, so good. it's too good, and so we're still getting fallout from this, and I'm living for it. I just love it. Bottle that to promote tennis. <laughs> Patrick must love that. A couple of non-tennis specific stuff before we finish with the return of the rant, <laughs> which we teased on social media. First up, 
Tiger Woods won the Masters yesterday. Listen, I lived when I, I, I had a just a horrible shift at work yesterday, being a Sunday. It was mm. terrible. But I snuck away to check my phone and I saw you tweeting about the Masters. I, can you believe I was watching golf? Not just yesterday, you were watching it on Saturday. That's true. You've been following this tournament mm. and I've, I play golf. I grew up watching golf. Greg Norman was my first golfing hero. And part of the reason why I love such tragic messes in all of sport because of the 96 Masters. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Republicans. I am floored. <laughs> oh, really? You can't handle the truth? Listen, I get, I get the problems. I get the problems. Okay, I do. Let's not pretend that I don't. But you've been mostly steadfast outside of thirsting after a golfer here or there. Brooks Kepka? That's, that's call me. That's call not me. even true because you grew up playing ten- you grew up playing golf. You golfed with your grandfather and your grandmother. Uh, but I wasn't very good. You were in like some kind of junior league. I didn't watch it. Still. I really was not very Still. good. Still. Yeah. I played at the par three course. This wasn't <laughs> like a club. This was the par three public course in my hometown, okay? <laughs> Don't make me sound bougie. It literally cost like $8 to play around. Would it be fair to say you enjoyed playing golf more than watching it? Sure. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I have good memories of playing with my grandparents. Okay. Definitely. Now, Tiger Woods, he is 11 years later removed from winning his last major title, wins the Masters again. And it, it caused a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. So... I was kind of rooting for Molinari because uh, he's Italian. My recently departed grandma was hyped about him winning the U.S. Open last year. It was the U.S. Open, right? One of the majors. One of the majors last yeah. year. Molinari won. But there, I mean, it was stacked, this tournament on Sunday. At one point, there were like five people tied for the lead. and The entire week. It wasn't just yeah. Sunday. Mm-hmm. The entire week, the leaderboard was lit. So Molinari hit the water, and then things just went south. And then it became clearer and clearer that this was Tigers to lose. He had a two-stroke lead, and this is happening. Mm-hmm. Because he got himself into a few tight spots in the, uh, what do they call that? Bunkers? No, like the, the, rough? the second nine holes. The back nine. The back nine. <laughs> <laughs> in the back nine. He hit, you know, he hit a few spectators, uh, you know, <laughs> was in the rough. How is he going to get out of this? And every time he did, it was it was really exciting to watch. The Masters, for all its incredible historical flaws, is my favorite tournament. Mm. Oh, the Confederate tournament. It is. Because the beauty of the course cannot be denied. True. And Amen Corner... That stretch of three holes on the back nine where the the tournament rests on those three holes. And that's where you saw Molinari hit the hit the ball in the water on 12. Where Kepka went into the drink as well on 12. It all happens. Like that tournament, the familiarity of it where everybody knows what's happening. Mm. But the course itself is still so unique and primed to host this kind of a, a shootout. It, it's... It's fun. Again, I get it that mm-hmm. it's all kinds of fucked up. I do. <laughs> no, I think there there's something exciting about 
this Augusta Country Club just, I mean, apoplectic about Tiger. Which a is crazy. A lot of white people going crazy mm-hmm. with excitement, applauding for a black man. That will always be the legacy of Tiger Woods. You have various black athletes who've made serious historical sociopolitical contributions to the fabric of the United States. Mm. But Tiger Woods is unique in that regard because that's what he's done. Right. And that's because he's done it in this sport. You'd say that maybe you could think that Serena should have been able to do the same thing in tennis because it's another lily white sport, but Serena's blackness has been far more unapologetic than Tiger's. Most definitely. Most definitely. That Serena said, has been more actively mm-hmm. revolutionary. That said, Tiger, when he was a junior, this was circulating in the last 24 hours, he was asked, what is the, the tournament that you're most looking forward to, to winning or something in, in golf that you most want to do? And he said, I want to win the Masters because of how they treat black people. As a kid, where did, that? where did that Tiger go? Wow. And I can't help but think that that's where the loss of his father at a fairly young mm. age. <laughs> yeah. Coinciding with his astronomical rise into wealth and the upper classes, he kind of lost his way. Mm. Not to make any excuses, and I'm not one here. Like, listen, I spent the majority of my 20s hating Tiger Woods and, like, hoping every fucking shot went into the water. You were also a contrarian at heart. You you were anti-Graf, anti-Federer. I still remember rooting for Rocco Mediate at the 2008 US Open, the size of Tiger's last major before this one. (laughs) But again, in keeping with the whole underdog calamitous sporting narrative, this is what's kind of drawn me back in because Tiger has been through a lot. That said, he is still very chummy chummy with, as someone reminded me from listening to a previous episode, the person I termed the pumpkin fuck. (laughs) (laughs) We were trying to figure out who who that was. This is like one of my favorite parts when folks mm. discover the podcast. And I don't know how you have the desire to go back and listen to tennis moments frozen in time yeah. from like months and years ago at this point, but then come back to tell us stuff that we said years ago. And I'm like, okay. girl, I struggle to remember oh, things yeah. I said 15 minutes ago. That was a good one. <laughs> Can't remember what it was about. <laughs> but Tiger won his last major in 2008. Mm-hmm. Do you know who else? One is her last major in 2008. This it's coming. It is coming. Listen, I can't even allow myself. Williams, Venus Ebony Star Williams. Serena tweeted that she is hugely inspired by what Tiger did. Mm -hmm. I would like to see it. To quote the great Monique, "There's Tiger is an incredibly polarizing figure, and that was on display yesterday with the reactions to him winning, and it's." For as much as he is inspirational and uh, a lightning rod for comeuppedness within black communities, you can still see how black people reject him. You can still see how white people reject him. (laughs) You know, Mm. people Mm. reject his philandering. People reject his associations and embracing of Trump. His apoliticalness. There's a lot of fraught with Tiger Woods. But yesterday was something that I think was cool to experience. Yes, yeah. and it, it was a historic sporting moment. 
this is your portion of the podcast. This is very macho, non-tennis sport things going on. No, but <laughs> these are people who are giving us yes, yes. the the non-macho part of the macho sport. Two of the all-time greats in the NBA are retiring this year, Dirk Nowitzki and Dwayne Wade. They've already retired. The regular season is done. Neither oh, is in the playoffs. Really? Dirk Nowitzki, a German basketball player, a German former junior tennis player. Mm -hmm. He's been a great champion of tennis over Big his time. career. He's somebody who was a nationally ranked junior player in tennis before pivoting exclusively to basketball. And every year he has a celebrity tennis tournament that's very successful. He's always tweeting about tennis as well. So there's that symbiotic nature between these two sports overlapping. <laughs> and then also Dwayne Wade, this this week as well, in in conjunction with his retirement, he had this Budweiser commercial that came out that highlighted some of the ways in which he has been a true advocate for downtrodden folks. Mm. Of course, you know, the intertwining with the commercial aspect of a or, big company so takes a little, a little so bit of the commercial. sheen off of it. It was strange. But he, particip but. he participated without knowing what exactly was going to come of it. So yeah. there's a, a smidgen of authenticity mm. still left in there. But <laughs> damn if I did not shed some oh tears watching that. Right. It, it doesn't make you a better, more politically aware person if you were not moved emotionally by no. that commercial. What it does highlight is that Dwayne Wade is part of this class of new age, soon-to-be-retired basketball players who, for the first time, as a collective whole, changed the face of the NBA. It, they transitioned the NBA from the apolitical Michael Jordan, Republicans buy sneakers to, into a group of NBA players who were unapologetically black and together decided that they run this league. And not only that, but they're going to use their platforms to collectively help black people and oppressed people and people who've had horrible things happen to them through their privilege and their platform. Mm -hmm. LeBron James has been a leader in that. Um, the three of them, LeBron, Carmelo, and Dwayne, have and done then great things. Chris Paul, mm -hmm. who was also part of the yep. Trayvon Martin uh, photo shoot. And these are just the biggest names. Right, it, right. it runs much deeper than that. And so this commercial highlighted the work that Dwayne has done in his life through basketball. And there's also the fact that he married a famous dark-skinned black woman. And they have really one of the most aspirational relationships there is in celebrity culture. <laughs> Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade, who have tried so many times like Gabrielle has finally had a child after suffering many miscarriages like there's just so much to love about this family she has taken Dwayne's sons as her own they're one big family and then this past week Dwayne has these insta stories where he's not able to be there in Miami at the parade but he is celebrating the fact that his, what, 11 or 12-year-old son mm. is marching in his first pride parade and letting us know that his son is gay and that he is proud of him. And his whole family is there. Yeah. The kid's older brother is there in South Beach at the pride parade. Gabrielle is there. The baby. Was the baby there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
Did you all see that video of Dwayne with the little girl and she kept sneezing? He says, bless you, mama. I didn't bless see you, that, mama. no. <laughs> the cutest thing in the world. But, uh, I mean, this is, this is new, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is new, seeing a major black athlete bucking these stereotypes, the racist stereotypes of the black community being a supportive father of a queer and or questioning son. This kid is young, right? The The world didn't know. The world didn't have to know that this kid identifies as gay. But there he is at Miami Pride, out there, brave enough to tell his parents and the whole world who he is. Because it's, it's not just his parents. He's Dwayne Wade's son. It has to be the whole world, too. I can only tell by watching some of the reaction to this that this is still not just a stereotype, which is also mm. why this makes this so much more meaningful coming from Dwayne. And I understand that that may be a fraught comment to a lot of folks, and I understand if you take issue with that. Maybe I'm not in tune enough to be able to opine in that way. But there's a lot at play as to why this is a big deal. Right. And this segues into the return of the rant. The rant, which is not the read. No, (laughs) but the read has a rant, don't they? (laughs) They have a read. Oh, they have a read. Oh, okay, so we're not not, not stealing stuff. It's not copyright infringement. Okay. So the rant is based on the idea that young children cannot possibly identify as not straight. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are very upset, saying that young people cannot possibly know that they're gay, that they're queer, that they do not identify as the gender they were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. How could you possibly know that? The idea here is what are they doing? What are the Wades doing Mm -hmm. having this kid proclaim himself as being gay and celebrating it when he's just 11 years old? And so the insinuation is that there's something in unsavory going on, that there mm-hmm. is some outside influence that in, in the worst, in the worst iterations that there is abuse even. Or why right. not just wait and see if they'll eventually change persuasions, <laughs> right. is find this, their is true selves. Maybe right. in two years they will like women. And I, I don't doubt that there are cases where there are kids who are like, I think maybe I'm gay. And then they decide, no, actually, I don't think I am. <laughs> like, it, it probably does sure. happen. Don't you think? It's it's rare. Sure. Because, why, like, why would you dabble in that? Like, why would you expose yourself to that sort of persecution? If... No, but the point is that these kids are 11 years old, and that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, no, like, no, no, most 11-year-olds are not actually sexual. No. Right? So when I, when you and I... As an example, we're seven, eight years old. You're not thinking about sex, but you may be thinking about attention from men or from boys. And it's not about sex at all. No, it's about being able to have a level of comfort and safety and security to explore these ideas mm -hmm. and not have it become a repressive, oppressive thing that potentially has long-lasting psychological effects throughout your life. Right. Like, that's what it's about. And so what if Dwayne's son in two years says, like, well, yeah, maybe I didn't, I don't really like that boy that I was crushing on next door, mm-hmm. and I'm not really gay. Maybe I just really wanted to be his friend. 
And, yeah. and traditional masculinity didn't allow me to express my feelings in a way that wasn't bound up in sexual identity, right? And the worst that happened was that I was able to show <laughs> support for a group of downtrodden folks historically mm-hmm. for me to gain some understanding of a whole different group of people that a lot of folks are taught to to fear and despise, to have a sense of engagement with my own sexuality and feelings and conceptualization of my own masculinity to then be able to situate who I am. Mm. Like that's something that's incredibly empowering. Can you imagine being able to go through that and then come out as straight, and then what kind of straight man will you be right. going forward? You'll like, be the best, the best kind. The best kind of gay. You will not be an incel. The best kind of straight. Yes, the best <laughs> kind of straight. You will not be an incel. You will not be a hotep. Or a blincel, as we've come to see today. Uh, apparently, that's a thing. They're all part of the, cut from the same cloth. Mm-hmm. People who hate women and who hate effeminacy. When was the first time that you realized that you were attracted to a boy in some oh my, level this is getting very personal <laughs> this is different from your rhetorical questions right so this is not about sex this is about uh like infatuation yeah right? the first time you're like yeah, as a oh, child oh of like course. what's going on here aladdin <laughs> <laughs> and i saw aladdin in his first theatrical run thank you i'm old as fuck i still remember being in grade six and I remember the, exactly the name of the boy. And it was like, oh, what's going on? Don't, don't say it. I'm not going to say the name. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at that age, at that young age, you don't know what that means. And so no. if you don't necessarily know what that means, having somebody who's so, in this case, happens to be so famous and so supportive can only be a good, th- I don't understand how this right. is a bad thing. Unless it's coming from a place of your own internalized bigotry. Mm-hmm. And, and there is, so there is like a group of people out here, very vocal on social media, who are afraid of sexualizing children. But they're only afraid of sexualizing children if those kids are queer. Yeah. Right? Because these are the same folks who are like, oh my God, look at two year old little Jimmy. Mm. He's so into two year old Betty. Like, like they're going to be married. Just like the language that we use with children, with, yeah. with little kids. Babies are flirt. Oh, he's flirting with he's her. He's such it's a like, ladies' man. He's six months old. Yeah. He's not flirting with anybody. Like we, queer people, are not the people who brought sex into no. the equation here. This is strict people right? causing this all this fuckery. This is the language of adult romance mm-hmm. applied to children. Yep. Why is it okay for Dwayne's son to be a ladies' man at 11 years old and not be... A, a, ma- a man's man. A man's man. <laughs> right? Or... So, like, that that idea triggers pedophilia. Yeah. But but the other the opposite, the more normal sexuality is like, oh that's that's fine. No, but you embedded know? in that normal yeah. sec normal air quote sexuality yeah. is ownership of women's bodies. Mm. Right? Because for you to be a ladies' man at eleven years old, you're having a certain sense of entitlement to women's bodies. Well, yeah, it's like you are getting what you deserve. It's mm-hmm. like your birthright, right? And so this rant is an unfettered appreciation and celebration of Dwayne Wade, Gabrielle Union, and that entire family 
for putting queer positivity into the world. And because they know that life is dangerous for queer kids of color, mm-hmm. period. Thank you for listening to episode 154. My name is Jonathan. <laughs> Let's just breathe for a second. That's emotional. Thank you for listening. This episode was called I'm Tired of Fucking Losing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the ethos of the body serve is just I'm tired of all this fucking shit. Whatever the shit is. <laughs> And so to to end this episode on such an uplifting mm. note, you always talk about how you struggle through the minutia of the tennis details and you enjoy the more, you know, socio-expansive yeah. Yeah. stuff. <laughs> Socio-expansive. I, I just coined it's, something. Okay. I That's how I felt this episode. Like ah, the first yeah. few segments were a bit of a struggle for well, me <laughs> you know we are a tennis podcast so you have to talk about that stuff we did yeah but i made sure to find a tenuous connection at best from dirk to Dwayne to the rant <laughs> <laughs> and uh as always you can find me on twitter at tennis underscore john i'm james at elliot jmr two l's two t's the body serve is at the body server on Twitter as well as on Instagram. We have to get our shit together in the next few weeks because yeah, we're we've, going away. We've been at a very leisurely pace, uh, bi-weekly, mm-hmm. but which is not the end of the world. No, it's not, especially at this point in, yeah, the, in the calendar. I don't think we've cheated folks for content, but we have this vacation coming up where we have to make sure that there's still content coming out. Yeah, so we, you know, we will be in Rome uh, for for a. Sh- a brief part of the Rome tournament, but we'll be away for about two weeks. We're hoping to maybe have like some kind of non-live tennis episode that we can put out before we go and then maybe have something on the road mm-hmm. somewhere. Like syndication. Like, <laughs> like we've recorded it in advance. Mm-hmm. It's going to take some planning. We have to get on that. And then bear with us. If we do put out something on the road, it will not be our usual typical audio standard. Just saying. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Hit us up with a review in whatever platform you use or download or stream podcasts. Chief among these iTunes, that really helps promote the show when people search for tennis podcasts. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.